I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to Audible, we can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I listen to Audible frequently and use it for some of the reference materials we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the podcast, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a great offer and a great way to support the show. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. History of the Marine Corps is also on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. Patreon is one of the ways we will make that happen. Patreon is a way for supporters of the podcast to directly support the show. And depending on what tier you join, you get perks and access no one else gets. Visit patreon.com slash marine history to look at our Patreon page. Thanks for your time and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 60 of History of the Marine Corps. Archibald Gillespie. Last week's episode discussed the preparations for the Battle of Chapultepec. We followed U.S. forces as they captured the last of the Mexican ports, and we spent the second half following the Marines to the halls of Montezuma. This episode rewinds the clock and takes another view of the war. As I mentioned during the start of the Mexican-American War series, this conflict involved two major areas of operation. One was the east coast of Mexico, and the second is the west coast of North America. We head back to the beginning of the war, and follow the path of a Marine who was trusted with the secret mission by the Secretary of the Navy and the President of the United States. Archibald Gillespie is one of the most important figures in the conquest of California, but he's someone you rarely hear about in the Marine Corps. This episode introduces this Marine and sets the stage for the invasion of California. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. While Marines and the rest of the United States Armed Forces were fighting on the east coast of Mexico, conflicts were happening on the west coast of North America as well. As with all disputes, the fighting included political games, which in this case involved Great Britain. North America was considered to still be an open territory for the United States and European nations. 
With tensions from Texas, the United States, and Mexico rising, Britain thought this would be an excellent opportunity to expand their reach in North America, specifically in modern-day Oregon and California. They had a small fleet that occasionally sailed in the Pacific Ocean, and to keep an eye on the British, the United States sailed a small squadron out west as well. In June 1845, the United States Navy decided to strengthen their presence out west and sent Commodore John Sloat on the Savannah to command the fleet. As new vessels were built or acquired, they were sent to the Pacific, which increased the Navy's presence. Before Sloat headed to the California coast, the Secretary of the Navy gave him secret orders stating he should employ the forces under his command to his best advantages and take possession of what is now San Francisco. His mission also included blocking or seizing other ports on Mexico's western coast. Sloat would also receive orders to handle other important cities such as Monterey, San Diego, and Los Angeles. President Polk's administration placed a great deal of importance on the west coast. In addition to Sloat's squadron and secret fleet, Polk also assigned three additional agents to monitor California activities. Captain John C. Fremont was provided a small detail and traveled to California as a topographical engineer. His expedition was supposedly for exploration and scientific purposes, but his actions in California were suspicious, and Californians suspected that he was there to start a revolution against the Mexican government. The second agent was Thomas O'Larkin, who was the American consul at Monterey. He had secret orders as well, and the gist of his mission was to support any attempt at a succession from Mexico. The third confidant sent to California was Marine First Lieutenant Archibald Gillespie. In October 1845, about six months before the war officially kicked off, Gillespie was assigned as a special agent by the State Department and Polk's executive agent. When I was in the Marine Corps, I served as a Marine security guard. This is a unique duty that holds a close relationship with the Department of State. Marine security guard detachments serve in U.S. embassies and consulates worldwide. Our mission was simple, to protect the classified information, American personnel, and U.S. government property at U.S. embassies. In that order. At least it was in that order when I served. I think today American personnel might be given higher priority than classified information. But anyways, every time I hear about diplomatic missions or relationships with the Department of State, my ears perk up. The Marine Corps and the State Department's relationship is rarely heard about, but there is no doubt that the State Department relies on the Marine Corps for many diplomatic tasks. We spoke about a few of these examples in previous episodes, the most notable probably being the Tripolitan War, with William Eaton and Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon marching towards Tripoli. Archibald Gillespie's responsibility as a secret agent is fascinating to me. And so is the conquest of California. Gillespie disguised himself as a merchant and made his way through Mexico to California, where he helped the Navy occupy the 31st state of the Union. Archibald Gillespie was born on August 14, 1810 in New York City. He was commissioned in the Marine Corps in 1832. In November 1845, Gillespie boarded the brig, Petersburg, 
and headed to Veracruz, Mexico. Only he wasn't wearing his military uniform, and he was disguised as a merchant. Polk selected him to serve as a secret agent in California, a decision that excited Gillespie. Before the Petersburg left port, he sent a letter to the Secretary of Navy, George Bancroft, that stated, quote, Be pleased to express to His Excellency the President how grateful I feel for his confidence, and assure him, at the same time, that he will find it has not been replaced. He goes on to say, To you, sir, I cannot say what I would wish at a moment like this, setting forth on an adventurous enterprise, but I can assure you, you will not regret having named me for this service. Unquote. This Marine was motivated about his mission. One of the four significant objects to the Polk administration was California's annex, and Gillespie was selected to help see this come to fruition. France and Britain had similar goals and already placed agents in California to help them with their mission. There was a secret war for California going on between multiple countries, and Gillespie would help the United States win it. He had just returned from a two-year tour at sea on the USS Brandywine, and the last thing this Marine wanted to do was to serve on another ship. So he wrote the Commandant the following, quote, In the consequence of the delicate state of my health, I am induced to request orders to take charge of the clothing store. I have been informed by Lieutenant Starkey that he expects orders for sea service. However, such be the fact, I feel that the general commanding will recognize my claim to the position after having served so long a period at sea. Unquote. To Gillespie's surprise, he didn't receive orders to serve at the clothing store, but he did receive a reply from Archibald Henderson that stated, quote, Lieutenant Gillespie, United States Marine Corps, you will report yourself to the Honorable Secretary of the Navy for such duty as he may assign you, unquote. When Gillespie reported to the Secretary of the Navy, he learned that his mission was to carry dispatches to Larkin and help carry out the instructions. Upon receiving his orders, he immediately headed towards Mexico. It took 24 days for Gillespie to travel from New York to Veracruz. During those 24 days, Gillespie memorized the Secretary of State's instructions to Consul Larkin. After he remembered his instructions, he destroyed the correspondence. This move paid off when he arrived in Veracruz. Gillespie reported that his luggage was thoroughly searched, which would have exposed the communication. Due to his disguise as a merchant, Gillespie was free to roam around the port without raising suspicion. He took copious notes during his stay in Veracruz and sent his first report to Mexico to the Secretary of the Navy. His primary concern was the lack of transportation across the country to California. He picked an alternative route through Mexico City and was able to pay $50 for a spot on the diligence, which was a coach drawn by two mules. The weight of his luggage was limited to 25 pounds, and Gillespie sent most of his belongings in a different mule train. It was a difficult and uncomfortable route but Gillespie made it to the capital in four days. He was fluent in Spanish, and when he arrived in Mexico City, he freely made his way around town under his persona as a businessman from Havana. 
He spoke with the locals, read the daily newspapers, and gathered a lot of information about current topics important to the United States. He determined that the Mexican government was, quote, too much occupied with their particular interest in drawing attention towards Texas and the United States to notice very closely the proceedings of a department so very distant as California. Unquote. Gillespie concluded that the Texas Revolution had done more for California's independence than any other single event of the time. He also concluded that the Mexican army was an ineffective fighting force. They were not well fed, poorly equipped, poorly trained, and, quote, the most miserable troops I have ever seen, unquote. Gillespie's research also convinced him that the officers were useless and stated, quote, As it is a well-known fact that the Spanish-Americans and the Indian soldier will follow his officer to the death, I was very particular in observing each officer as he passed me, and I must say, a more pitiable collection never was seen with any soldiery. They are generally very young, quite small of stature, appear to have but little control over the men, and I am credibly informed are almost entirely ignorant of the soldiers' duties. Unquote. Gillespie documented almost 10,000 troops in the area, but their experience came nowhere close to the U.S. armies in Texas. Gillespie watched as the Mexican troops left to engage Taylor in what would be the opening battle of the war and he noted their low morale. He lived there for over a month, and before he continued his voyage, Gillespie bought a serape, a sombrero, and a sash for $36. He also purchased horse equipment to make his trip to California a little more comfortable. Dressed in his Mexican outfit, Gillespie booked another ticket on the diligence for $95 and started on a seven-day trip to California with his pistol in plain view. Upon his journey, he came across the Mexican military heading for Texas. They were 2,700 strong instead of the 4,000 reported by the Mexican government. They were also traveling without supplies and were begging for food from the locals as they marched. It was also January, and the troops were dressed in their summer uniforms, without shoes or blankets. Their severe exhaustion and lack of leadership only allowed them to travel a few miles per day. Gillespie took this opportunity to speak with the Mexican troops, and he reported that the men consistently testified that most were forced into service, and none of them were happy to be there. For almost three months, Gillespie traveled throughout Mexico, boarded a ship to Hawaii, and finally arrived in Monterey on April 17th collecting intelligence as he traveled. Immediately after he arrived in California, he wrote a letter to Larkin and invited him to board the cane. When the two finally met, Larkin invited Gillespie to his house, and the Marine officer recited the memorized correspondence verbatim. After meeting with the consul in Monterey, he left for Yerba Buena, today known as San Francisco, to find Fremont. It wouldn't be an easy task. As he traveled north toward Sutter's Fort, John Sutter, a German-born Swiss immigrant who was both a Mexican and American citizen and heavily involved in the California gold rush, recognized Gillespie. 
He remembered his name from the register of officers on the Brandywine and stated that he had seen Gillespie many times at the Washington Navy Yard. The news of a Marine traveling throughout California in search of Fremont caused many rumors, and those rumors spread quickly throughout the West Coast. With his cover blown in that area, Gillespie moved quickly to find Fremont. He recruited a few men and headed north. It was a tough journey, and Gillespie encountered a small group of Native Americans along the route who helped him cross a river and provided food for the hungry men. On May 9th, Gillespie set up camp and was settling in for the night when he heard shouts coming from the distance. It turned out to be Fremont and a small relief force. Both parties were happy to see each other, and the timing couldn't have been better. Within a few hours after the two parties met, the same Native American force who helped Gillespie attacked. They followed him along his route and were planning on killing and robbing the Marine officer. Fremont's relief force helped stop the attacking Native Americans, but he lost three men in the process. If Fremont had arrived just a few hours later, the story of Gillespie and California might have been drastically different. The discussion of these two men isn't precisely known, and historians of the Pacific Coast have argued passionately about the meeting. There's confusion on why Fremont returned to California from Oregon, and why he instigated the Bear Flag Revolt, despite Polk's orders for a peaceful annexation of California, something we briefly discussed a few episodes back, and we'll discuss shortly. It's unknown if the secret correspondence had instructions that differed from Polk's public declaration, or if Fremont blatantly ignored Polk's orders. However, Gillespie does provide a couple of clues in his reports. In a Senate committee hearing, Gillespie's statements made it seem that he emphasized Polk's peaceful policy. But Fremont's memoirs, and an interview in 1884 with Josiah Royce, would claim otherwise. I went down a rabbit hole digging through communications. There's a lot more to this story, including Fremont's correspondence confirming that the U.S. intended to take California by force. It seems like the evidence is leaning towards the messages confirming Polk's peaceful conquest of California. But there's just enough opposition to understand why this debate isn't settled. But regardless of what the messages said, Gillespie delivered them. When the two men arrived in the Sacramento Valley two weeks later, they found many settlers fleeing to Oregon. The Californian authorities issued orders that forced Americans to give up their land and leave the area. Archibald Gillespie tried to convince the fleeing Americans to stay and work for their rights in California. However, his pleas fell on deaf ears, and the settlers continued to move to Oregon. But just like with any forceful removal of a population, there was resistance. Gillespie tried to caution those who were seeking retaliation to take a step back and be patient. He advised the settlers to stay calm and not give the Mexican government an excuse to take physical action. Unfortunately, some wouldn't listen. On June 10th, Ezekiel Merritt and a dozen mountain men captured horses en route to Santa Ana's Mexican forces. This action was the first event in the Bear Flag Revolution. Four days later, Merritt would see Sonoma, and raised the bear flag over the town. 
Fremont sent Pearson Reading and Samuel Hensley to gather information. Both men were key figures in the Bear Flag Revolt. As Reading and Hensley arrived in camp to meet Fremont, a messenger closely followed and asked for immediate help as members of the Bear Flag Revolt were about to be attacked by Californians. This is where Fremont decided to support the Bear Flaggers actively and headed toward Sonoma, and Gillespie followed. Gillespie recounted an event where two Mexican messengers were killed in cold blood with approval from Fremont. During July 4th, many Americans had settled in Sonoma and were celebrating the holiday. During the party, Fremont officially declared that he was prepared to join the Bear Flaggers in this revolution. 224 men made up a battalion of the resistance. Fremont was the captain, and Gillespie was the adjutant. As Fremont and Gillespie marched towards Fort Sutter's, they received a letter stating that Commodore Sloat had taken Monterey without a fight on July 10th. Both Fremont and Gillespie were unaware that the U.S. had declared war on Mexico two months earlier, so this came as a surprise. The goal of the Bear Flaggers was to make California part of the United States. But now that the U.S. seized Monterey, there wasn't a need for a revolution. So just as quickly as it was formed, the Bear Flaggers quietly disappeared. Even though the Californian Revolution was over just as quickly as it started, the war with Mexico was just beginning for the United States. With Commodore Sloat seizing Monterey, Gillespie had a new task to make his way to Sloat and speak with the Pacific Squadron commander. He immediately left for Monterey and in three months arrived at his destination. When Gillespie first met with Sloat, he received an ass-chewing for the revolution. As Gillespie put it, quote, Commodore Sloat, at the interview held on board the Savannah, did not express himself as satisfied with either of us and appeared extremely distressed at the thought of responsibility in any way connected with ourselves. Commodore Sloat, up to this moment, had not recognized the operation of the command of Captain Fremont, and at our late interview, required that a letter should be addressed to him by Captain Fremont, showing by what authority we were in the country and what orders we had been acting." Unquote. In response, Gillespie stated that he was not authorized to discuss military operations with Sloat. I can imagine the awkwardness of that conversation, but after some resistance, Sloat let it go. And Gillespie made his way to Commodore Robert Stockton and briefed him on the incident. Unlike his colleague, Stockton approved of their behavior and offered his cooperation to their mission. With the meeting over, Gillespie quickly made his way to Fremont. He found him at the mission of San Juan Bautista on his way to Monterey. During the seize of San Juan Bautista, something we discussed during the last two episodes, Fremont obtained nine large cannons, 19 and a half kegs of gunpowder, three barrels of musket cartridges, two tons of shot, and 160 muskets. The two teamed up and headed for Monterey. When they arrived on July 19th, Local residents were shocked and impressed by the sight. The company was made up of, quote, 160 lean, tough, and well-armed fighters. These were gaunt, hard men with steel-like frames, 
unquote. As Gillespie and Fremont marched through the town, they passed a group of Marines who were patrolling Monterey's streets. But the Marines didn't bat an eye at the two. They were given strict orders to ignore the two men. Four days after their arrival, Commodore Sloat retired and gave up his command of the Pacific Fleet. Commodore Stockton took his place, and to Fremont and Gillespie's surprise, his thoughts on the war aligned closely with theirs. He favored a more aggressive policy, which included incorporating the Bear Flag movement into California's overall plan. On his first day as Commodore, Stockton enlisted Fremont, Gillespie, and the Bear Flaggers to take California. Fremont was promoted to major and placed in command of the California Battalion, and Gillespie was promoted to captain and assigned as adjutant. With the new military force in place, preparations were quickly made for the conquest of California. The California Battalion boarded a ship and made their way to San Diego to embark on their mission. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll change direction and look at the invasion of California by the U.S. Navy and Marines, and follow Gillespie as he continues on his mission. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is The Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant. The authors of this book are a husband and wife team who spent 40 years writing the story of civilization, which is an 11-volume, 10,000-page, 4-million-word set of books covering the Western history. If you don't want to read that monster of a book, good news, they summed up their work in this audiobook. Hearing this couple's thoughts on our current civilization and how it compares to past civilizations was just fascinating. It's more than a history book, and Will and Ariel do a great job at translating their vast experience in history into a philosophical view of human civilization. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, Check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, Please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.